and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Uh, if you're new, welcome. My name is Paul Trimble. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm the senior pastor here at Bent Tree. Even though you may have been here a few weeks and haven't seen me before, I took a break from preaching because I had pneumonia. I was in the hospital, and uh, although I had Got to do a lot of study and work. Uh, the staff and the shepherding elders thought it would be good for me to take a few weeks off and recoup and rest. And then last week, uh, although as well, we went to visit our son Jack and his wife Tori in Florida. He's in seminary there, uh, training to be a pastor. And so it was a great trip, relaxing time. But I missed you guys. I did. I look around and see those faces that I love. And so thank you so much for all the prayers for my recovery uh, and the kind notes and cards that I, I'd never gotten like get well cards. And I guess y'all thought I was going to die because I got a lot of them and it was good. And, and many of you prepared wonderful meals for me and my family. And that was uh, great, except now I've got to wear a bigger shirt. So, but I have been missing you. I have. Um, my home church. There is something to say for your home. I've been ready to get back to back in the saddle to preach. And uh, so I've been off for six weeks from preaching. So you guys are in trouble here. I've just got a lot to say is all I'm saying. So let's get our Bibles out. Let's turn to John chapter six. Let's hear God speak to us in his word. Amen. Let's get started by thinking about where the text has taken us, get our bearings and think back with me. The first 13 verses of John chapter 6 describes the feeding of this giant crowd on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. Verses then 14 and 15 tell us the effects of that miracle, what it did to the crowd. And then verses 16 through 21 of John 6, we saw the disciples in that horrible windstorm. And Jesus comes strolling by on the water and rescues them. He uh, is their deliverance. Then verses 22 through 25, we looked at how that giant crowd he had fed the night before now followed him around the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. Now, one of the great things about going verse by verse through the Bible is how we can see it fit together. It's one story, although it feels disjointed to most of us. Most Christians, their understanding of Scripture is based on what I call kind of a Facebook theology. Here's what I mean is is they read a good verse once a day or so, some kind of post out there, and then they try to understand the meaning of that. They, they get the initial meaning. They go, how does that fit in? They, they get kind of an understanding. And that's what we try to do here is give things context because that's where the meaning really starts to come out. In biblical interpretation, context is king. And for the book of John, it's like, well, it's like having a Bible in just that book. Uh, and that's what the Bible is like. Because right at the core of the Apostle John, what he does for us is to reveal who Jesus is so that we might believe. That's the goal. He says, that's the reason I wrote this book, so that you might believe. And the purpose for that is that we would be saved. We seek to understand this passage from a grammatical, historical, cultural uh, context of the first hearers. Now, the other thing going on verse by verse that you see is that you don't get to skip difficult things. Sometimes when you go verse by verse, you find whole new parts of the Bible that you didn't know exist. Can I just say most pastors, and I 
I don't say this out of pride. Those pastors just skip what I'm about to preach. They just skip it. But we're not going to. The truth is most pastors, pastors don't preach on the next verses. because they, Or if they do, they hit it so light and so fast. That's not every pastor. But most just hit it so last, light and fast. You don't know you've, you've studied it. You know what I mean? And, and then in verse 26 through 40, we begin to listen in on a conversation between the crowd and Jesus. As he begins to reveal his divinity as the son of God. Now, Jesus began to upset the crowd first by pointing out their unbelief, pointing out their sin. In seeing all this and what he's done and then not believing, he points that out. It was, it was at this section that Jesus began to teach them about salvation, how salvation is accomplished, what salvation actually means. Now, we call these doctrines the doctrines of grace, how we're saved, or shorthand, the dogs. Doctrines of grace. Then in verse 41, there is this natural break that you see in the text. And then there's this conversation with the crowd that begins to be represented differently. You'll notice if you read carefully that there's a new group of people that have joined with the Jewish people. And he, John simply refers to them as the Jews. These guys have stepped into the middle of the conversation that has now moved to the local synagogue there in Capernaum. Now, everywhere we see the term the Jews, it's not talking about the Jewish people. It's talking about the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, and the religious leaders. It's talking about these leaders who view their role as defenders of their orthodox Jewish teaching, and they're trying to stir up trouble by trapping Jesus in something he says. Does that make sense? So that's what changes here. That's why they're trying to antagonize him. They want to make him look bad in front of all these thousands of people that have followed him. It hasn't worked so far, has it? And it was here last time, many moons ago, uh, as the leaders and then the crowd we started to look at, they began to murmur. They began to complain because Jesus had said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Now, if you're not Jewish, you don't have the background, that just doesn't sound very threatening, does it? But there are very few things that reveal the depravity of the human heart as murmuring against God, and then we see it here in the text. Make no mistake, this crowd increasingly understands that Jesus is claiming to be divine, the Son of God, the Messiah, which... When they consider this a blasphemy worthy of death, the Jewish leaders, they want to stone him, but they're afraid of the crowd, so they're trying to turn the crowd. Make sense? So, Jesus is going to lay some truth on these guys. He's going to get real specific about who he is and how salvation is found. Now, let's dive back into the text as Jesus is teaching. Look in your Bible there. I'll have it up here, but look at verse 47. Jesus says this. He says, truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. Anyone who believes has eternal life. He says that's truth. Jesus starts out by talking about that the key fact that belief is is key to eternity of being saved. Now, He's answered this question before. This is not new, but that was earlier when the crowd was even larger. Now he has said that anyone who believes has eternal life. 
Now, why do they have to believe to have eternal life? And what does it mean to believe? He says again in verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. He said this to the larger crowd back in 35. In fact, flip back to that, verse 35, for just a moment. Let's look at it. He says this before. He says, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one comes to me, will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And he had said it again, and then in verse 40, and now here in verse 48. So three times, He has said this. They realize what Jesus is claiming, but they refuse to believe in one of such lowly birth. He's poor. They're making fun of, well, Joseph, probably not your father. We know about the divine birth kind of thing that what Mary said. They're making fun of him. Worse even is that they are too self-centered with their own works of righteousness to reveal uh, that they need a savior. Does that make sense? The Jewish leaders, and especially in the 400 years before this, God had been silent. No prophecy. The Jewish leaders had developed a system in that 400 years of do this and don't do this. Do this and don't do this. And they created their own religion. They thought, led by the Pharisees, they thought of this alternative system of religion. They said if someone could keep the law of God so perfectly, they would achieve kind of a a self-righteousness that would force God's hand to come and set up his kingdom there because they were just so good. Their faith wasn't in God, but rather their faith was in their own ability to keep the law, which is laughable. It was a false gospel based on pride, self-reliance that said, we don't need a savior from our sin, but we do need a savior from the Romans and to make our country great again and give us the things that we don't have that we want. So Jesus goes right at that false belief. He says in verse 49, he says, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Now, what does he say? He is referring to God's chosen people, the Hebrews, right? That God had led out of slavery in Egypt centuries before across the Red Sea and to the base of Mount Sinai where they received the law. God had given them this law to set them apart, to make them holy. He said, do this and you will be like me. He had promised them a land of their own, which was only, check this out, only about two weeks away from Egypt. But they would not trust God would take them to the land. They had doubted. They had rebelled against God. So the result, well, you know it. They spent 40 years in the desert or what we call the wilderness, a desert around the south part of what we think of as Israel and what they had been promised. So just short of the holy promised land and the entire 40 years of the nation wandering around in the desert, God had fed them, sustained them by giving them bread from heaven called manna, six days a week. They gave them enough so they could have some on on the Sabbath. So finally, when all those who had not trusted God in the desert, or originally at the beginning of the 40 years, when they had died, their children now were adults, they believed God, and God took them into the promised land. 
Now, here's Jesus' point by bringing all that stuff up. The bread from heaven given to the Israelites is a miracle. Is it not? I don't think anybody can, can say it different. Bread from heaven, it kept a couple of million people alive in the desert. That's all they had to eat. But they still died a physical death, didn't they? Although the manna had kept them alive physically, it didn't take them to the promised land. It did not give them spiritual life, eternal life. But now a new bread from heaven has come down, Jesus says. A bread that will give them spiritual life, not just sustain them physically. So check out verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. That anyone may eat of it and not die. Jesus is not talking about a physical death, clearly. He's talking about eternal life, spiritual life. Now, he has said this before, but watch this time. He's going to add something critically important. So he says in verse 51, look at just the first line of 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. This time, he calls himself living bread that comes down from heaven. So what's different from the original bread from heaven and this new bread that Jesus is claiming to be? He says in the second part of 51, he says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So that's a major difference, isn't it? This bread doesn't just keep you alive physically. It has the power to deliver eternal life spiritually. Here it is. Look at the last line of 51. He says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, Jesus is claiming that his physical body is the bread of life, this new bread that's come down from heaven. Now, this instantly just sends the Jewish leaders over the edge. Man, it's, it's like they have been triggered. They lose it now. They don't see any need for one to come down from heaven to save them. Why? Well, because they're self-righteous. In their mind, they need someone to come down to carry out what they want done, to carry out their will, their plans, to throw off Roman rule, to restore Israel's glory as a nation, they don't see a need for forgiveness of sin. So we read in verse 52, all that the Jews argued among, all that the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now this is a good question, isn't it? Because this sounds like what? Cannibalism. But Jesus is using a picture here, an analogy. He's using the illustration that he, as God the Son, has taken on the flesh of a human so that he is both truly God and truly what? Man. His body, through his body, salvation will come. That as this God-man, truly God, truly man, is living this sinless life, a righteous life, that you and I could not live. No other human could. But that through believing in him as Savior and Lord, placing our faith in Jesus, that we could find life, spiritual life, eternal life. Now, I've got to to point out something. I've heard some preachers try to connect what Jesus is saying here to say this is the Last Supper. This is not the Last Supper. This is not when he sets the Last Supper up. 
Now that he's talking about the same thing, his blood and his body, right? Uh, I don't believe he's talking about communion because he hasn't instituted that yet. That's still coming. Communion commemorates the actual crucifixion, the death of Jesus. So there is the connection to the body of Christ. He's talking about the same thing, but he's not referring to communion yet. Okay, That's important because the question comes to mind, why is Jesus responding to these Jewish leaders and this crowd this way, using this, this illustration? Well, do you remember when we started the chapter? I mean, it was like in 1972 or something like that. But we said it's going to work kind of like a giant funnel. Do you remember that? When we started the chapter, we said it's going to funnel down to just a few. It begins with Jesus feeding the the giant crowd, it funnels down. Jesus is teaching them true salvation, what it is, who he is. Through him alone, it's funneling down. Much of the crowd at this point has already left. And now the crowd, probably still pretty good size, but not 20, 25,000 people anymore. But it has these Jewish leaders that have joined in. Now, now watch, watch what Jesus is going to do with this illustration about his body. This is fascinating. Jesus is about to separate True followers from false followers. Jesus is described as a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, meaning that when confronted by Jesus, we must examine his claims. In other words, when you come across Jesus, you trip on him and you go, what is that? What is that? And this statement Jesus is about to make is going to make people stop and do one of two things. Realize who he is and follow him. Or they're going to be offended and turn away and go, this is just weird and walk away. So he says this in verse 53. We'll take it through 56 here. So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh And drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Now the followers have been misunderstanding what he's been saying. Thinking he's talking at a physical level of eating bread like manna. Like they're going to go up and chew on his elbow or something. Like that's... That's not what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about something much, much deeper. Write this down. Jesus uses this language of eating and drinking to illustrate the intimacy of the union between himself and the believer. Let that sink in. Write it down. Jesus uses the language of eating and drinking to illustrate the intimacy of of the union between himself and the believer. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's using a physical illustration to show us a much deeper spiritual truth. I might add, much more real than the chair you're sitting on, this physical world. He's describing a spiritual union by which Christ gives new life to the believer. Now, in John 15, if we were to ever get there, in John 15, Jesus will use the illustration 
of a vine and branches to convey the same intimacy of relationship believers have with Christ Jesus. He says in verse 5 of chapter 15 of John, he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. You've got to be connected, he said. This is the life Jesus is promising in him, both now and throughout eternity. Our little brains begin to fry with that thought. But in what we just read from Jesus, notice that he makes four promises in chapter 6. Think through these with me. Let's look at number one. Write this down. Those who reject Jesus have no life in themselves. Those who reject Jesus have no life in themselves. Talking about spiritual life. Now wait. Didn't Jesus just say right before this that God the Father is the one who chooses us? Didn't he just say that? Yes. And it's right here that we see, yes, but we also have to choose to believe. It's those railroad tracks together. They don't touch, they just go side by side. God is sovereign and chooses, and we must believe. So the one, the ones that do choose Jesus by faith do have life, and in fact, they are guaranteed abundant spiritual life starting right now in this life. They don't have to wait for heaven for this abundant life to begin. And yet, at the very same time, know that he has called us to life first before we choose him. He says, I chose you first. Okay, let's look at the second promise Jesus makes here. Number two, those who eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood have eternal life. I know it's simple, but write it down. Those who eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood have eternal life. How? (laughs) If you just walked in off the street right now and you sat down and you were listening to me, you'd go, man, I'm going to slowly back out of this place. These guys are whacked. How do we eat Jesus' flesh? How do we drink his blood? And why use such a horrible image to illustrate this truth? Answer that second thing first. Why use this kind of language? Now remember the funnel that we just talked about? Jesus is taking this giant crowd that wants to make him king, force him to be king, and force him to give them bread and fish and all their wildest dreams. But he's telling them, look, that's not really believing. To really believe means to abide in me, to abide in me, to organically be united with me, to consume me with everything. So what about the question then? How do we eat his flesh and drink his blood? As with food we eat for a natural body that needs to be completely absorbed to give us life, to consume Watch, his teaching to consume his words. Now, I'm about to mess you up a bit. To place our trust in his word, in what he said. Now, what's interesting is that when I talk to most Christians about consuming his words, and then I point to the Bible, we automatically think it starts right 
here in Matthew, right here in Matthew. And that would be right through the New Testament. You go, okay, it's the New Testament. We got to consume his words. That's right. But as Jesus is talking right here, none of these words exist yet. The New Testament hasn't been written. So we forget sometimes that what we call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant is just as much the word of God as the wor- and the words of Jesus. John 1 tells us that. That he's the one, he's the word. After Jesus' resurrection, as he's walked along the road, two disciples to the village of Emmaus. Do you remember that? They don't realize who he is. They've just heard about the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus just kind of comes up beside them. I would love to have heard this message. Jesus hasn't revealed himself to these two guys. And they've been talking about the events of the day and about hearing Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus says to these guys in verse 25, he said, and he said to them, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So what's he talking about? The Old Testament. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Isn't he talking about the Old Testament? Yeah. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now this is fascinating. The Old Testament is completely, along with the New Testament, the story of God and therefore, therefore, the story of Jesus. We need to abide in his word to take the whole thing into us, to consume it every day, to drink it in, to contemplate it in study, to begin to realize who God is as he reveals himself in this word. So a person who by faith eats Christ's flesh, drinks his blood, and abides in him. There, there's that word abiding that we saw in John 15. Abiding in Christ requires us to have an obedience all through our life to be associated not with sin, but God's word. So if God's word says this is sin, we kick it out, don't we? But when we do sin... We repent, we turn away from sin and begin to follow Christ Jesus. Let's talk about eternal life here. Make sure you understand this. Not only does eternal life begin once we get to heaven, it really begins now, here. Now you've heard pastors say that, but what do we mean? We can even go deeper. We realize that we can, right now, grow in Christ as we begin To show some spiritual fruit by consuming his word, by drinking it in. To say, I understand. We begin to have spiritual fruit produce and produce good works in our lives. It's those good works that the world goes and goes, what's that guy doing? He's nice, he's kind, he has a joy and he's going through hell right now. What's this deal? You see what I'm saying? And that gives God glory. It's those good works that give God glory that the world notices. But here's what our our church misses. Most Christians miss. Not all of you. Our growth does not stop when we get to heaven. Like some people think, I get to heaven and it'll all be there. It really begins to even grow more. Our life in heaven expands and grows eternally 
in a completeness that will last forever. Now this makes smoke come out my ears, and I'm sure it does to you too. I struggle to get my brain around this. Our growing in Christ Jesus never stops. Even though we are complete in him right now, we are growing at the same time. How can that be true? Well, another way to think of it is that to be complete here is talking about without sin, that we are forgiven of our sin. We have been given the righteousness of Christ Jesus. But there in heaven, without the ability to sin anymore or want to sin for all eternity, would that be nice? That's what we're looking for. That is heaven. Even in heaven, we'll continue to grow in Christ Jesus to become more and more like him. And how is that even possible to us to always grow to be more like Jesus? Have you ever thought of that? How can we always grow? Because this is the hard thing. If he is infinite, and he is, and we are finite, and we are, so he is making us, pouring into us, being more like him for all eternity. That, my friends, is heaven. Yeah, streets of gold, that's nice. It don't mean nothing compared to knowing and loving and becoming more like Jesus. But on that side of death, no sin, no death. All right, the key, though, is that we are always now in this life consuming Jesus, taking his word in here as sustenance. His name is the word of God. We saw that way back in John 1. He is our food. He is our drink. To know and obey every part of his word. Now, three, the third promise here, you want to look at that, Jesus makes is that Jesus will raise up all those on the last day who eat his flesh and drink his blood. Here's how you can write it down. Jesus promises that he will resurrect the physical bodies of the dead for those who eat his flesh and drink his blood. For those that are new to the faith or not Christians, you go, do you believe that? Absolutely. This is the core of what we believe. Jesus promises, we see it here in John 6, That he will resurrect the physical dead bodies for those who eat his flesh and drink his blood. Which we know is consuming his word. Believing. Now, this is important. This is the third time he has made the promise to resurrect the physical dead bodies of the believers. We see it here in verse 39, verse 40, and in verse 44. It's a big promise that Jesus is making and he does not want us to miss it. The resurrection to everlasting life is the believer's great hope, isn't it? I've left you along for too long. I need some amens here. Like you guys need to talk bad. That's right. The resurrection, listen, to everlasting life is the believer's great hope, isn't it? That's better. Like we talked about Easter Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday, 1 Corinthians 15, without our physical resurrection from the dead, this would all be meaningless what we're doing. Finally, number four, Jesus makes the fourth promise in declaring that his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. The very sustenance that provides very life of God to the believer. Write this down. Jesus makes the promise that his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. You go, Paul, we just said this. I know. Write it down. Jesus makes the promise that his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. 
When we say the word true, what do we mean? The definition of the word true is that which corresponds to reality. That's the most simple definition of truth there is. That which corresponds to reality. So God is true, and Jesus is saying his flesh is true. What's interesting is that the word true also has this connotation of being eternal. Why? Because if God is true, he's eternal, and really all truth is God, then it is eternal truth. You with me? Now, the manna that God gave his people way back in the wilderness, in the desert, was a temporary food, wasn't it? It was a physical food, but his body is a spiritual food. That through his actual physical body, his death on the cross, he's going to give us life as our substitute, as an atoning sacrifice for all who believe in him to reconcile us to the Father. Now, this is why the preachers that preach from this pulpit here on Sundays, even if I'm gone, even if I had died, please preach the truth, preach the word. And these guys did, I listen. But it's like a spiritual meal that we're giving you. It's not to be the only thing you're supposed to eat during the week. I mean, you're supposed to come to this every week. Don't miss unless you're sick. But you need to be in a Bible study. You need to be in a D3 group. You need to one-on-one time. Being consuming this word. I do it first thing in the morning. That's what I do. I just need to be reminded that I'm a worm and he has saved me and I don't know why. But I'm going to follow him. But this is our big meal right here. Family time. We're all gathered around the table where we feast on God's word together. We throw some steaks out there. You guys cut them up. You're eating them. The little kids that are listening go, I don't get a little bit. I don't get it all. But mom and daddy are cutting a little piece off. You go, take this. By the way, there's a ton of empty calories out there you can consume. Spiritual candy, if you will, that you can consume. And sometimes people will consume that only and say, hey, we don't need church. We'll just watch a little snippet of a sermon on YouTube, read a nice little 80-word devotional on Facebook, and we're good. Look, I'm not saying that all the stuff on social media is bad, but there's a ton of bad stuff out there. And most of the good stuff is just so small, just so light, and just empty enough of spiritual calories that it won't give you life. Folks, we need meat. We need potatoes. Or I should say, we need fajitas, rice, and beans. Amen? Now listen, Jesus puts this in John 14. This would be the night before Jesus is crucified the next day. He says this to his disciples, starting in verse 18 through 20. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me because he's going to die. But you will see me because he's going to be raised to life. Because I live, you will live too. We lean on the resurrection. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. This is far more than just a mental descent and agreement with what I'm saying, that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a deep personal relationship that should shatter your world. It's an abiding 
a plugging into God. Okay, back to chapter 6, verse 56 again. And then let's add verse 57 and 58 on that. <laughs> Look at this. All right, here it is. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Okay, you got that. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate. It's not physical bread, he said, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He's talking about himself, isn't it? Now, what's interesting here is that the term living father, underline that in your Bible. That's the only time in all of the Bible, the entire Bible, that God is referred to as the living father. It's kind of an interesting thing. The point is that the son, though, draws his life from this living father who is living, this living father. He says, I live because of the father. Now, check this out. He's not saying he's a created being. He has always been. He's always been. Eternity back. He's always been. But he says, I live because of the Father. My life is wrapped up in his. I'm connected. Now, this is interesting. The believer's life, the eternal life is now and always will be dependent on the Son. When Jesus says, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Do you see the relationship between the Father, the Son, and then those who abide in the Son, Christ Jesus? Now, this next thing, this is one of the most important theological concepts in the New Testament in John here. Look back at verse 56 for just a moment. When it says, the Father remains in the Son, underline that word remains. Let's see what we see there. The Spirit, what? Remains on Jesus and believers remain in Jesus and he in them. You see that? A lot of remains there. It doesn't change. Here's why that's so critically important. A believer in Christ Jesus has this intimacy and security in the Son, Jesus. And how high is that intimacy and security? Well, just as Jesus has a relationship and intimacy and security with God the Father, our relationship with the Son is just as secure. Do you see that? Not because we're the ones proving that, but Jesus is. When it says, just as he has life from the Father, so believers have life because of Jesus. We are invited into this this relationship with God through Jesus. Now, let's go back to these Jewish leaders in this crowd. They're complaining. They're mumbling. They want Jesus dead. This is really deep stuff Jesus is talking about. And it doesn't match up at all with what they have believed or what they've tried to sell as what the Messiah would do. Jesus is not living up to their expectation. He's ruining all of their plans. The religious leaders are wanting an earthly king. They want somebody that will be uh, a provider for them. So look at verse 69 or 59 and 60. He said to, he said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. 
Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? I don't want you to miss this. The crowd begins to reject Jesus. But who does it say rejects Jesus? Not the religious leaders. They already hate him. Many of his disciples. Now remember the night before, 20, 25,000 were wanting to make him king. They were willing to give their life. But those people are peeling away fast because of what Jesus is saying. But this is not just the crowd. It's some of the people that have been following him for maybe almost three years now. It's not the 12 disciples. They're still there. We're going to look at that over the next couple of weeks. But many of the others that are, have apparently been following him, that know him by name, they know him. And they say, it's too much, Jesus. We can't handle this teaching. We're out. By the way, please know that as I began preaching through this book, I realized what Jesus had said uh, in chapter 6, that it made so many people upset and they left. I was worried that the same thing would happen here at Bentry. He's saying, you want to believe, that is what it means to believe, to eat my body and drink my blood. They can't handle this truth. Using Jesus' analogy, they have no hunger for the bread which has come down from heaven if it includes doing these things. By the way, we see this today, don't we? Without the teaching of sin and total depravity, when we talk about the need to be saved, most people are like, saved? Saved? Saved saved from what? Because they think they're pretty good. If you ask the average dude on the street if they believe in God, the numbers are staggeringly high. Just that there's a supernatural power, a a creator. The numbers approach 98% by some estimates. Not that they're Christians, but they believe in a God. But if you ask them, when you die and you stand before this God and he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What will you say? And the answer by far that most people say is, well, I'm a good person. I mean, basically, I mean, I've done more good than bad. And often these people are, that claim to be Christians, but Jesus says it's just too much. Jesus says it's so much more than that. To hunger to know Christ, Jesus more in everything we do. That is what Jesus is talking about. To hunger after him. To consume him. And not just to keep living life. But to obey what he says. The truth with most is. That they have no hunger for Jesus at all. They don't hunger for real life. And when you bring up the gospel. And mankind's need to be forgiven of, of our sin. Things get ugly fast. I mean. Men despise and reject the Savior because they don't sense a need of a Savior. They just don't. Look back at verse 44 for a moment. No one can come to me, this is Jesus, except the Father gives him to me. Although that is true. What Jesus is saying here was really to address their responsibility too. Men need to come to Jesus, they just don't have the ability to. 
The statement Jesus makes is not designed to repel people, but to humble those to come to Christ. The crowd goes away here. They leave Jesus with just a few, the 12. From 20, 25,000 people the day before to now just the 12, all looking at each other. Could some of them who left maybe become followers after the resurrection and Pentecost? I suppose so. We don't know. But to see Jesus do these miracles and then reject him because of what he preaches. Man, that's cold. But many of you do it. Jesus has just separated the true followers from the false followers. Here's the thing about the gospel message. Salvation is exactly designed for what every sinner needs. Redemption, forgiveness of sins, and righteousness. But at the same time, it's not at all in line with what we naturally believe and want. Our natural way of thinking just... We can't handle this. That's because the gospel message is too spiritual for a mind that is dead to the spiritual things of God. And really, the gospel is too humbling for the pride we all naturally have. Maybe I'm pointing at myself as well. The gospel goes against the rebellious will we have before Jesus Christ. And the gospel... It's just too high above mankind's for understanding. Again, we're not saying we can't understand it at a mental level, but we're talking about a spiritual level. Most people are like this crowd. Why would we follow you, Jesus? We're doing pretty good on our own. We don't need you. We just need you to give us a few things. That's why we have to be born again, to be made new. Made new by the Spirit of God. Regenerated By Christ Jesus, no man with a natural heart will ever embrace God's salvation. Did you hear me? No man with a natural heart will ever embrace God's salvation. There's simply an inability there. Not a physical inability, but a moral one. The question we have so often asked the people that have been redeemed is this. How is any man ever saved then? Why doesn't every man reject Christ's offer of salvation? What we have seen is that God has chosen some guilty. We're all guilty. He's chosen some guilty sinners who are facing hell, facing judgment to be given life. And because of that life, they believe in his son by supernatural influence. He calls them to life. Like we saw in weeks past, the Father draws them to Jesus by the power of what? The Holy Spirit. We see the three persons of the Trinity at work in our salvation. God ordains it. Jesus makes it possible. And the Spirit draws us to him. To try and to say that every man has the power and the ability within himself To either accept or reject Jesus as their Savior is simply to ignore the fact that all men are captive of the devil because of their guilt of sin. Are you with me? I know what I'm saying hurts some of your feelings so bad. I'm saying it because I love you. I'm saying it because Jesus said it. To say that our ability to choose Christ without being born again by the Spirit of God is just a flat contradiction of what Jesus says in verse 44 when he says no one can come to me unless the father who sent me 
draws him. I don't know how you get around that verse. I don't. To say that our ability to choose Christ without being born again by the Spirit of God is just to contradict all of what Jesus has just said in chapter 6. And well, all of John. Well, and just let's throw in the entire Bible. We simply can't get around Jesus here. He is the boom, the stumbling block. And you go, well, that's not the way it should be. I go, your argument, baby's with Jesus, not me. Think about this. If it's true that I cannot get out of myself, I mean before Christ, that I'm guilty of my sin and I'm dead in the spirit because of that sin, that every part of me has been poisoned by sin, even the so-called good parts of me are tainted by sin and no good. That makes me an enemy of God, doesn't it? And if I'm powerless to free myself from sin, if there is nothing that I can do to end, to, uh, that I can do on my end, there's nothing I can do except cry out in my helplessness, save me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. I mean, if I cannot come to Christ except God the Father draws me, just like Jesus said, then what's my responsibility here? Beg the Father to draw me to Jesus. Give me faith. Help my unbelief. Give me faith to believe. I want to believe. Give me a hunger for Jesus. Now the problem is, the unregenerate sinner is so spiritually destitute, so dead in their sin, they will never come to Christ on their own. Even the very cry out to God, we have no desire to do that. Before Christ. So if you sense in your lostness right now, if you sense that you need a Savior, listen to me, that's not you. You're being drawn to the Son. I mean that as serious as I can be. It's not even me. It's not my ability to somehow convince you that Christ is real. That's the Holy Spirit of God that is drawing you to the Son. You are being given faith. You are being born anew, born from above. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I mean, God, on one hand, it's so high above our head that it just makes smoke come out of my ears and yet so simple at the same time, God. That you chose us in your son. That we would have life. That we would be given life. God, thank you for that life. Thank you that when I was willing to sin, break your commands, that you said, I love you. God, thank you that when I was an enemy of you, you called me to life and made me a son. As you just continue to pray, I'd just like you to look up here. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know you're a Christian, maybe you just, you go, no, this is all baloney. Here's the thing I want you to see. Just look at me. This is real. This is reality. That God loved you so much 
that he sent his son to take your place. Because the sins you are guilty of, you had to pay with your life for eternity. But God said, I'll send my son. I'll punish him in place of you. It's the swap. He gets the pain, the suffering that you deserve, that I deserve. And you get his glory, the righteousness. So when God looks at you, he no longer sees the old screwed up you. He sees the righteousness of his son. Your sins, past, present, future, have been paid for. If you're getting this right now, that's the spirit of God. So repent. Repent. Say, I'm sorry for my sin. Turn from it. Leave it behind. Quit doing it. You know the last time I repented? Right before I got on this stage. It's a thing we do every day. Sometimes constantly if you're like me. Just to say, God, I'm sorry. I still want those old things sometimes. But no matter what the cost, I'm going to follow you. Even when it takes my life, I'm going to follow you. Will you make that commitment? That's what it means to follow Christ. To be a part of this place. To be a part of a, a spiritual body. To serve. To love. To give up your plans for your life. There's this thing that we do as Christians. If, you're, if you haven't done this... So, As a believer, you need to do this. If you're a believer and haven't done this, we call it baptism. Here's what it means. It's a physical thing to show a spiritual truth. It shows how you are repenting. What happens is, and we'll do this in just a few weeks, so sign up for this. In just a minute, we'll have elders up here after the service. You can come pray with them and you can tell them, sign up, or you can do it online. But here's what baptism does. You come sit down in this tank and I ask you a a few questions. I say, are you a Christ follower? And you'll say yes. And I'll say, do you believe that Jesus' death on the cross has paid for your sins, past, present, future? You'll say yes. I say, do you believe Jesus raised him from the dead and will raise you one day? Yes. Now say, my sister or my brother, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because it was all three persons of the Godhead who led to your salvation. And I'll lean you back and I will shove your whole body underwater (laughs) because that's the dead you. It's just a symbol. You're already saved. And we're doing this symbol of the dead you going under the water and then raising you up new. In Christ to follow him all your days until he returns to take you home so end your prayer like this God thank you for saving me I want to follow you show me how to repent and obey your word in Jesus name I pray Amen thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.